0: Hey everyone, this is Mike Joseph, and I just wanted to say that I hope you enjoy the episode you're about to listen to. If you do, I kindly ask that you tell a friend about detoxicity. Even better, please rate, comment, and subscribe on whichever platform you're using to listen. I'm always on the hunt for new and interesting guests, and I like keeping in touch with those of you who listen, so if you have a recommendation for a guest, or if you just want to know what I do day to day, follow me on Twitter at Tis Mike Joseph, or on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy, or both. You can even email me at DetoxPod at gmail dot com. On a less self promotional tack, I really hope that you and yours are keeping yourselves and others safe during this pandemic. And even if you listen to this after the pandemic is over, there is no greater quality, in my opinion, than people who are empathetic and kind to others. Hell, it's a big reason I do this podcast in the first place. Enjoy the show and be well. My guest for this episode is Cornell Verdeja Woodson. Cornell is the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the meditation app Headspace. He is also the founder of Frave Trainings, a company that provides a starting point for corporations and organizations to discuss diversity and equity through authentic dialogue and intentional action. Diversity and equity form the bedrock of our discussion. In light of summer 2020's national reckoning with race relations, it has become a hot topic for corporations. Cornell discusses how he came to be involved with this work and what it means to him, especially as an intersectional minority. We also talk about Cornell's upbringing in Camden, New Jersey, the value of practicing gratitude, acknowledging mentors, and being a newlywed. So uh, check out my conversation with Cornell. All
1: right. All right, so yeah, my name is uh, Cornell Verdeja-Woodson. I'm the founder and CEO of a uh, a small boutique consulting firm called Brave Trainings, but I do that on the side. I also am the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at a company called Headspace, which is the mental health app. That's that's actually pretty new. So I'm I'm still growing into that role and pretty excited about it. But yeah, I've been doing diversity for about 13 years and helping to, you know, spread the news around what it means to build inclusive and spaces of belonging for different underrepresented populations and working with higher ed organizations, nonprofit, for profit, and things of that sort. So really passionate about this work and love having these conversations about what it takes to just build spaces for everyone.
0: How did you end up getting into this space in the first place? What was the impetus for you to do this?
1: I did not choose it. I always tell people that, you know, back in college, I was uh, a pre-med and I thought I was going to be an OBGYN and deliver, yeah, deliver babies. My goal was to cure cervical cancer. Like that was like my thing, failed organic chemistry, miserably like straight. (laughs) There was no bouncing back from that
0: and then and you were just like this is not my thing
1: this is not my thing and went through several different other iterations of different careers and things that sort of like what i thought i might do and then ended up applying to teach for america and did tfa after i graduated in atlanta teaching ninth through 12th grade english and it was there that i came to terms with recognizing that although i had come from a space of marginalization as a you know oldest of five kids single-parent household, low-income, I now was on a different side of the table. And it forced me to understand my own privilege and to also then begin having conversations with other people about that, particularly Teach for America teachers and some of my other colleagues too, about what does it take to build inclusive classrooms. And so that really started it. And I started reading more bell hooks, RG Lord, right. And started understanding the system, even in a much different way. And it just kind of happened. I I was posting on Instagram and Facebook about my thoughts on different social issues and people were like, oh my goodness, you you need to come talk to my class or talk to this company. And it just kind of pulled it from there.
0: And from being able to talk to people to actually running your own firm. Mm Like, what what was the step that you were like, okay, I'm going to make a whole business out of this?
1: So, again, that was by chance, too. You know, Uh, a bunch of my friends kept saying, like, you've got to take this further. You know, I was doing it. So, my background is in higher ed. I got a master's in higher education. So, I was doing it at NYU. I was doing it at Cornell. I did it at University of Vermont. And my friends kept saying, like, you got to launches further you need to spread what you've got because you have a great way of helping to connect people to the material and so in 2015 I said okay you know imposter syndrome was definitely a real issue because I'm like me start a business like no one's gonna (laughs) hide me no one cares what I have to say it's not gonna you know work and I said screw it 2015 I'm gonna do it and launched the the LLC did the website and it literally, I haven't spent a dime in marketing in the last six years.
0: That's amazing.
1: Every client I've ever gotten has all been word of mouth.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And I've undergone some brave trainings and I, you are very good at what you do. I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) I would have to imagine that there are benefits to doing these as well as drawbacks particularly Mm -hmm. the way i've seen things is that sometimes as a minority when you were doing diversity trainings Mm -hmm. you kind of have to relive your trauma over and over and over again how do you deal with that
1: yeah Mental health has become a really big part of my daily practice, right? And I'm trying to figure out, you know, and I try different things, right? I haven't found the one thing that works for me. And so that, and really just being in tune with where I am in that moment, before a workshop, after a workshop, in between workshops, and what is, you know, what what baggage am I holding on to? What emotions Mm -hmm. am I holding on to? And being, being really honest about that and talking out loud about them. I think the other thing is really surrounding myself. I think what has been the most saving grace is surrounding myself with a really strong core of a network. So really close friends who either do this work or don't. My husband is like a major support system because he's there listening to the rants. And either validating or checking me, you know, I think that's sort and holding space. So again, my own sense of understanding of my mental health and where I am and that network of people who are like, Nope, you are not tripping. This is real. Go take some time away and you know, really relax and reminding me about self-care.
0: That's awesome. Now let's backtrack a little bit. And you mentioned some biographical stuff really quickly that I find interesting. Now you grew up in Jersey, if I remember correctly, right?
1: Camden, New Jersey, right out of oh, Philadelphia. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: <laughs> so I, I've I've been to Camden. I've read the news stories. Camden uh-huh. is a rough yeah. spot. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, it, it, yeah, <laughs> and I think that's where I have to admit most of my passion and understanding about these issues come from that lived experience of being in a city that has been underfunded under, you know, you know, supported because it's predominantly black and Brown people.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. What was your upbringing like? I mean, there's gotta be like minefields, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, as somebody who, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn in the eighties and early nineties, probably a similar situation. Yeah. What, what was that? How did that shape you and how did you yeah. sort of Ooh. get to the other side of it?
1: absolutely i think growing up in camp you know a you know single mother right dad was around physically but mentally and emotionally not present dad was dealing with his own stuff so i was very much with quotes around it right the man of the house right i hate that gender language but like yeah you know. and i had to grow up really fast you know so at the age of seven i was taking care of my little sister right While my mom worked in you know Slept when she came home because she was, I, I, I believe that she was depressed after losing her mother so young. And so I had to take on a lot of responsibility that most young people don't have to take on at certain ages. Taking the laundry around to laundromat, washing it, folding it, taking my siblings to and from school, feeding, like all the different things, and so I had to grow up real fast and I think that matured me in a very big way that I think has prepared me for the life that I have today of like the drive and the tenacity and, you know, knowing that I want it more and, and the, the hustle, right? Like I work a full-time job and do, you know, a company and do all, and people are like, how do you get all this done? I had to. Right, like even in high school, you know, I I, I went to Cayman Public Schools up until middle school and then I got a four year scholarship to a school called More sound Friends, which is a private Quaker school in Moorstown, New Jersey. And even my, the parents of my classmates were like, how, like, you? I worked, did the play, played sports, got decent grades, you know, I wasn't right. a student, but I, you know, I, I did what I needed to do. And people were like, how are you getting all of that done, you know? And it just—I think my upbringing in Camden taught you how to juggle a lot to survive. And while back then I was always—I don't say embarrassed, but—and I don't even—and you know what? Maybe it was embarrassed or ashamed of where I came from. Today I'm like, nah, that created the roots I needed to grow, you know. And you don't learn that until you're older That's and right. you look back. <laughs> you
0: know what I mean? That's right. Um, you spend yeah. so much time trying to get out. And yeah. you do have a, a level of shame when you look back, but then yeah. you get to a certain point in life when you realize how much it shaped you for good.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and prepared you for what the world was going to bring to your life, you know? Yeah. And, and even doing Teach for America, having that, having had that background of understanding to some extent what my kids experience on the day-to-day helped me be a better teacher, right. a better mentor to them as well.
0: And there's also an element of learning survival skills yes. that a lot of other kids don't never have to deal with when they're uh, preteens or teenagers or what have you.
1: And exactly. I mean everything from you know how to navigate the streets on your own, right? Knowing to watch, you know, and, and not because I'm necessarily was in a, and that's anywhere. Even right. when I'm in white spaces, I'm, I'm making sure I'm <laughs> being aware of my surroundings, right? But you're taught how to protect yourself. You're taught how to do laundry. <laughs> when I went to college, people who grew up in, you know, wealthy or middle-class, they didn't know how to do laundry. <laughs> right. I knew how to cook. I knew how to do all these things because my mom knew that I needed to, one, help out, and that it was what I needed in order to survive once I was older. You know, so, yeah, you learn a lot fast.
0: That's right. And on top of that, growing up, and I don't know if you prefer queer or gay or what Mm -hmm. have you, but growing up non-heterosexual in that environment. I mean, when did you sort of reach the knowledge stage of what that was and how did that impact your upbringing as well? So, you know, back then, yeah, that was, I
1: never considered myself in the closet right i just didn't understand the feelings and the emotions that i was having right i always knew that i was like wow that's a good looking man or that's a good looking young." but it did never necessarily you know yeah i just never felt like i was hiding i just didn't understand that this was what this was i was actually bullied a lot hmm. by my peers in middle school in elementary school for being gay, right? Back then, I'm like, what the hell? What are you talking about? Like, I don't know what you mean. Like, I'm just here, I'm just chilling. I, I don't recognize the, you know, the limp in my wrists or, you know, the way I talk, or in fact, I don't play sports and crap like that. And so they were seeing something that I wasn't seeing. And so growing up in Camden and being that kid was rough. I got bullied a lot and like beat up a lot. And even so much so that one, you know, one time I got jumped by a group of boys and the security officers watched and laughed hmm. as this was happening, you know? And so that back, you know, back then that, that 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 it hurt, right? Today it's like, nah, thank you, because you taught me something, you know, a lot, right? But it was definitely wrong. I came out, I had a girlfriend all through high school. And it wasn't, you know, what you see in the movies, oh, he has a girlfriend to hide. I really loved her, right? Like I was very much, I I believe that sexuality is, you know, this ever-changing, evolving thing in the individual human. And that there is a thing of being connected to someone's spirit and their soul and, and, and who they are as a human and not necessarily the physical, right? And so for her, that's what that was. But, you know, I do identify, so for that, I identify as queer, right? And, you know, currently I am, you know, married to a man and I do find myself being more attracted to men than, I, than than women, but she was an individual whose spirit I was connected to. Sure. You know?
0: Yeah, I also do some sexuality educating stuff on the side. And A, I think it's important to project to people the difference between sexuality and romantic or personal yes. uh, connection orientation. Yes. And it's really important to understand, and I think people understand this internally and are just afraid to say it externally yes. that sexuality absolutely. does exist on a continuum.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You have so many of these straight bros or straight men who know that they love their best friend in a much different way. That doesn't mean sexually, right? But just mean that there's a deep fondness for this human being yeah. who happens to be a man. But they would never say that because that's gay, right? right. <laughs> because I had that deep fondness for women, not for another man. You know, uh, there was some research that I, back in college, there's this guy out of out of the UK who was who studied relationships or friendships amongst heterosexual men, and found that at least there's a certain generation that was opening up to their uh being more public about like, yeah, I don't want to have sex with this individual, but I will cuddle with him because sure. there's that connection that you have with that individual. So I, I think it's I think we're awakening to that more and more, which is really exciting too.
0: It is. The world, I mean, I'm in my 40s and mm. the when I started to come out in the mid-90s, the mm-hmm. world was a much different place than it is yes. in 2021. Right. And I do think that the generation uh, after me and the generation after that have yeah. really done a lot in terms of understanding the fact that all of this is such a not binary Absolutely. A construct.
1: Absolutely, I one hundred percent agree. Yeah.
0: So, so you you get out of high school and you went to an HBCU. Am I correct about that?
1: No, no actually. It's, okay. It's so funny I applied to several, and I just I don't know. It was something about it that I just I it. I had such negative experiences with the black community, to be honest, to be very, very honest, you know, growing up, they were my tormentors, like my own community were my abusers. And so the idea of going to an HBCU scared the shit out of me.
0: Right. And that's right? a, an interesting concept because a, I do think that there is a, a level of homophobia that exists very strongly, particularly in like the church. Community, but in the Black community in general. Yes. And I also think there's like the crabs in the barrel mentality Uh when you are an academic achiever, yeah. Or when you do things to kind of step out of the community, you're being you're seen sometimes as a sellout. Oh. Or you're a mark for people to. So it's really rough because look, I love being Black. Absolutely. But like the saying goes, sometimes it be your own people. Uh huh.
1: One hundred percent, and we never want to talk about that. Right. We never want to talk about the issues that you know, even the you know, the sexism and the transphobia that exists within our community, because we're so you know. I think the feeling is that well, we're oppressed and we're fighting for our lives. It's like yes, and we can also acknowledge this other truth over here too. Yeah. That we got some work to do and where it came from. Right, but yeah, so I, you know, I, I didn't go to HBCU for that reason. Little did I know, going to a predominantly white institution wasn't going to be any better. Uh, <laughs> where, where, where did you Where did you go to school? I went to Ithaca College in upstate okay, New York. upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And you know, dealt with racism probably for the first time. And actually, that, that's a ballface lie because high school I definitely dealt with it for the first time. I think my junior year. Okay. But I think it became much more of a, I understood it as a systemic issue than an individual issue when I got to college, because I started seeing it in a very different light. And then Teach for America also catapulted to that even more. So yeah, that was a very interesting, but awesome experience at the same time.
0: Right. I can, Teach for America, I can see being a place where there are very many of what a friend of mine called well-meaning white people, uh-huh. yep. where they, they have the, the right, they, they, at heart, they're trying to do the right thing, right. but they don't, there's also kind of the savior complex. Absolutely, i want to come in and save
1: these people because I got what they need.
0: Yeah, and, and I'll be honest,
1: I think I was also a well-meaning privileged black person coming in thinking that I had what these black kids needed. Right. And little did I know my kids were like, yeah, no, you may have come from a similar experience. You don't understand our experience, right? And you know, that it was, it was the first time I was like, wow, black people are not monolithic, right? We, yes, we may all experience poverty or experience, you know, marginalization, but it's not in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so even I had to check myself and recognize I'm not here to save them. I'm here to work with them, you know.
0: And what, ultimately, what did working with these kids, what was the biggest lesson that you learned?
1: Mm-hmm. Or was it
0: the fact that that black people are not a monolith?
1: I think that was one of many, right? And that I had to check my own privilege that I had now transitioned into. I grew up poor, but now transitioned into some form of wealth, even though back then it was not, I wouldn't have called it wealth, but compared to, right, I had transitioned into another economic class bracket and I was perpetuating the narrative, right, that these people needed to be saved because I was no longer poor anymore. I was somewhere else and my mind shifted, right? I don't know that I would have done that had I been, still been, you know, live, you know, poor and living the life, you know, the class that I was in, you know, when I was growing up, I don't know that, that that mindset would have been there, but because I had something that they didn't, I transitioned into the saviorism complex that I had to really check. So that was really big for me. And then also just the power of vulnerability was something I learned a lot about. Apologizing to a bunch of, you know, 13 year olds is really humbling, um, I can imagine. Know, because they look at you like, you're apologizing to us? You know an adult is apologizing to us i'm like yeah right and modeling what it looks like to be wrong to own it and to to keep moving forward which i really think is what gained got me their respect and even to this day they still call me and say just thought about you or they you know they they tagged me in a meme i recently had a couple of students tag me all different tagged me in the same meme on facebook who was your favorite teacher and they all tagged me and oh. many of them were like because he listened because he was there, right, and so it just it was just it, I think that set me up for the work that I do today, which is a lot of listening, a lot of vulnerability, and modeling what it looks like to just own your shit, right, so we can all move on from it
0: <laughs> i one thing you said that struck me when you and I first spoke is mm-hmm. that you do acknowledge your male privilege, even though you know as someone who is black, as someone who grew yeah. up poor, as someone who is queer. There, yeah. there are a lot of, you know, there's, you know, you're an intersectional minority, yep. but as a man, there, there is a level of privilege that you right. attain. And I don't think, I mean, I don't know how many people think about their privilege on a regular basis. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> it's something, I mean, as someone who was kind of in the same shoes as you, it's something General. that I had to to learn as well. You know, yeah. I work with a lot of women uh-huh. and I'm all, I also am, you know, I am not someone who flags as queer the second that you meet them. Gotcha. Got so on. I also sort of have a presumed heterosexual privilege mm, as well, yeah, and yeah. it it is you know you to step out of yourself and see what other people, I mean, particularly Black women and Brown women and Asian mm-hmm. women and mm-hmm. you know go through in in the workplace and in life it's really eye opening to to yeah. see the you know the level of privilege that each individual person carries or doesn't carry with them
1: absolutely and you know that was i think that was one of the biggest aha moments because you know you live your life with you know the the blinders on and you right. only see what you experience and how you navigate the world, and what you know you ex- you know experience as you navigate that world, and it's not until you actively like open, widen them up and widen that gaze to go, whoa, there's so much more out here that are, that's outside of my own lived experiences. That it's so easy to go, no, but I'm black and I'm gay and you know and and I was and I'm broke and come from poverty and things of that sort. And it's very easy to own that, but it's never easy to own the parts where you have perpetuated systems against other groups that you're not a part of, right? Um, What I I think is so telling of like the human condition, right? Like I find that we are naturally selfish individuals, right? Because we've been, you know, we've had to be, it's like survival, right? But we've never evolved out of that, right? That survival, actually is better in the collective than it is me trying to just only fend for myself. Mm -hmm. That if all of us have what we need, we actually all benefit from that, you know? And I think that that's what really caused me to be more open and honest about the errors of privilege and own my marginalization at the same
0: time. What does it take, do you think, for other people to get to that realization? Because we're in a stage right now, like as we're recording this, there are lots of people, you know, dealing with McConnell just, you know, stop the 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 bill. So selfishness is kind of selfishness and privilege are top of mind for a lot of people right now. But there are also a lot of people who either willfully or unconsciously are not recognizing the levels of privilege that Mm -hmm. they have and also are not realizing that they're the things that they do have consequences for people that aren't them. What do we, right. as a society, need to do to get more people to that point?
1: I, I, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer, to be honest with you, right? I think there are multiple multiple answers. I think, one, that there are just people who are just so uneducated about experiences outside of their own that they literally have no idea what's happening in that community or with that group or this group because they this they only care about this and that's it. And so, and there's a theory called exposure theory that talks about the more people are exposed to difference, the more aware they are of the world on in a, in a much wider view. And many of us growing up lived in, you know, communities where everyone looked like, like us, had similar lived experiences, so that's all we know, right? right? And so I think that's that's one part of it. I think the other part, and I think probably in my opinion, the biggest part is fear. Because if I know better, then I have to do better i no longer can use the excuse of i just didn't know when people call me to task to say hey what are you doing to help your 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 neighbor because now i know better so na- now the guilt comes if i don't do anything right so i think and also the fear of and i think we've i don't know if we've created yeah yeah we definitely have the fear that then i become the enemy hmm. right so my male privilege or white privilege or class privilege or whatever the privilege is People fear, like, no, I don't want to be the enemy, so I'm not going to own it. I'm gonna constantly live in the marginalization that I've experienced in my life because then that saves me for some reason. Because because multiple truths can't exist at the same time, right? <laughs> it's like come on, right? And so I think fear is a big driver of how we do a lot of things. I mean, you look at you know what happened during COVID. People bought all the damn toilet paper and paper. Te- what, were, what what there was a fear behind that. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I don't know what the fear was and why you didn't go buy food. But whatever. Yeah, <laughs> but, really. But there there was fear. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Brene Brown talks a lot about that as well, right? Like, how do you come to terms with this fear? And what is it rooted in? Who taught you that that was this, uh, you know, what's going to happen if you acknowledge areas where you've got it good? who taught you that that was the that, that that would be the repercussion of you acknowledging it where where did our psychosocialization come in that has taught us about these narratives right and until people are willing to like break down and dr- and lean into the discomfort is what we call it in in higher ed lean into that discomfort we're not going to get anywhere and until we create a space where people can be supported in that discomfort right people are never going to dive into it you know and, and that's a personal experience. I didn't lean into my male privilege and the discomfort of recognizing that until I had a community that was like, hey, we're going to challenge you, but, but, but we're also going to love you at the same time and, and, right. and, and help you through this process.
0: Right. That's really important to have people who will call you on your bullshit, but will okay. do so in a way that makes you not feel defensive. Right.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: And then at the same time, i got to, why am I being defensive? Right. Because
1: sometimes that defensiveness comes up and no one's done anything yet. <laughs> no right. one, I didn't give anybody a chance to do any harm. Right. Like we have so much trauma that we live with that we have no idea because we haven't even unpacked it. You know, this scarcity myth that if I don't have, if I give, then I have less or if right. more people get more then I have less. Who told you that? Who said that? <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. It's true. It's true. So as you're doing these trainings, what, what are some of the common things that come up in conversation Mm. that you find yourself having to contend with as an educator?
1: Yeah, holding space for people at different parts of their journey. You got people who, you know, as you mentioned before, really well intentioned and want to learn. You got people who are well intentioned and think they've learned everything that they need to know, and that they don't really need to be here. You're not talking to them. You're talking to everybody else. It's like, yeah, no, sis, you too. Um, <laughs> right? And then you got people who don't want to be, don't want to be in those workshops and those conversations, and are just there because they were voluntold or required. And then those who just are very adamant about finding the hole in everything you say. And and we'll spend the entire two-hour workshop going, yeah, but what about this? And, well, how about this? Or maybe it was this. And so you're holding space for each of those characters, right, in two-hour training. And it's exhausting, right? Because, again, you have some people who are willing to go on that journey and others who are just like, they are coming, but they're dragging their heels in the dirt because they're not going to come easily, right? And that's a lot to do one person for at this point during COVID, 60 to 70 people at a time in two hours, <laughs> in two hours, I'm like, how do I give a little bit of something for everybody to help everybody get to the next part of their journey? So I've got to know my audience really well and know all the characters that are at play and be ready and be prepared for anything that might
0: come up. That that almost feels like it requires a psychology degree because a lot of it is dealing with human emotions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I do not have a psychology degree. I have a communications degree. I mean, that's organizational communication. So I guess there's some understanding of that there, but no, like this is just through years of just doing a lot of trainings and seeing a lot of different people and even just reading and watching. Right. You know, sometimes it was, it it wasn't even about just even teaching. It was just watching the different characters, even just in the world and going, yeah, all of you potentially will be in a workshop at some point, (laughs) right. And you may be in mine and I'm ready for you. Right. So when I train other facilitators, we have a conversation about who are the players that may show up at your table at some point and how do you manage them, you know, and what is behind their behavior. Right. Like what's, what's back there. I thought about getting a doctorate in behavioral psychology, but then I was like, absolutely not. Um, I just cannot see myself spending five to six years doing that. But I don't think it's beneficial to really understanding who's coming into the room or when that person is in front of you, how to like, you know, assess them, the situation in the
0: moment. I'm curious about the people that try to shoot holes in the stuff that you talk about how, how do you handle, how do you recognize, well, it's, I guess it's easy to recognize, but oh, how yeah. do you then re- regain your control over the room
1: Yeah, and
0: kind of put them in their place?
1: i think there's multiple things i do one i have to always come ready with the data because most of the time they're like well you know where'd you get that from and what's the source so i deliver the data and the source before you even have a chance to answer i know you're in the room i know you're there and i'm going to give you what you're going to ask for before it but then you have the character who even when you give them data and the source they're checking They're challenging you on the data and the source, right? (laughs) And I'm talking about McKinsey. I'm talking about Harvard. I'm talking about like I'm talking about some unnamed. Right? I'm talking about the heavy hitters. Oh, reputable exactly right and you'll still find people and people like that i'm like you just want to battle because you don't want to acknowledge this is real and so this ain't about proven or data for you this is just you don't want to acknowledge that racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and you know ableism exists right so i'm so you're very different and so i've and you know i've been very direct in trainings to say you know This isn't a place for me to argue with you individually, but I would love to talk with you one-on-one if you're open to that conversation. But right now I have a whole room full of people who I have to be here for, right? Right. But thank you for your your comment. And it's something for us to think about, right? So it's like that balance of like, I'm going to check you because I see what you're doing, but I'm also not going to make you feel like shit (laughs) unless you're real egregious, which I don't think I've ever had that experience where someone was just really egregious where I had to really go, you need to calm down. Right. You know, but I've been able to handle it in a way where I can give you what you want to a certain extent. We can do this back and forth for a little bit. But I've got more content and other people who I want to engage with. What I have found, though, is that the tribe is always in the room at the same time. And so they also recognize what's happening and they'll pop up and kind of take and go, well, if you heard what he said earlier. And I I have to kind of sit back and go, "Uh uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. Because it doesn't have to be me anymore. Right, the people are like, no, he just told you. And I love it when white people do that. When they recognize that another white man or a white woman is kind of like doing their thing, they go, yeah, hold on. <laughs> and but... I'm like, yep, thank you, right? <laughs> right. And they step in to use that white privilege, right? To go, no, that's not what he said or that, you, can, you can Google that so we can move on <laughs> because it's on the Google. So it, there's just so many ways in which people like that are... Dealt with, and never do they ever come back to me one on one to really have a conversation, which just furthers my understanding. Like you just wanted to be a diversion in that moment; you didn't really want to learn.
0: Yeah, they're trying to show out for you,
1: and then you have. But then there's that rare, not rare, but it's not as often as the others, where someone is asking a lot of questions, and it's not to derail. It really, they really want to know, and they're and it, it. Sometimes I think at first glance it feels like they're challenging you. But they're really not. They're really like, I just, wow, I've never heard that before. And here's what I'm thinking. And those people are great to engage in comments and they always follow up. They always come back and go, thank you for allowing me to kind of ask all those damn dumb, what to them feels like dumb questions. I'm like, no, like I appreciated you going, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And, or I disagree, but help me understand. Those are real powerful moments.
0: Did you have like a mentor? to to help you through this process of growing up or mentors i guess you can have more than one
1: yeah i mean i've definitely had a community of people of all what you know they say you, you should have mentors from all different backgrounds right to help you navigate the world right and i definitely did you know my godmother is a white woman who lived in camden new jersey who became you know. I don't even call her godmom, like she's my mom, right? right. She's my second mom. Her, her children are my cousins, right? We make no distinction between family and non-family with them. So the, her, their Aunt Carol is my Aunt Carol. And Aunt Carol, who passed away a number of years ago, she gave me some of my first African-American literature. This is a white woman, right, who was like, you need to know your people and made sure she I had books that reflected me in it. Toni Morrison, you know, like she was, you know, and it was so powerful to have someone like her who said, have your voice and use it, right? But then I had other people at church, right? Because I did grow up in the church, you know, and mentors there and teachers who looked out for me and, you know, administrators in college. So I had a whole community of people who along the way were just like, keeping me in moments where I was like veering a different direction that might harm me. They were like, uh-uh, come on back. <laughs> like So I had a ton of people who, if I had the opportunity to write all their names down, it'd be a long list of people.
0: And how important is it to have that community, whether it's from a mentorship capacity or yeah. whether it's just from a chosen family capacity? How important yeah. is it to have a group of people in your life that love you and challenge you and you know do all these supportive and nurturing things. It's so
1: critical because I mean at the end of the day, you know, no person is an island, right? You don't do anything by yourself. I don't care how hard you work, you do nothing by yourself. We always have people who are with us guidance. One of my favorite quotes, I have it tattooed on my arm is a Maya Angelou quote um, from her poem, To Our Grandmothers. And it's, I come as one, but I stand as 10,000, right? And so I may be sitting here accepting this award or making this money or sitting on this podcast with you, right? And yeah, we're focusing on me right now, but there are 10,000 to the 10th power, as Oprah puts it, of people who had came before me who make this moment possible. Right. And so that tribe is super critical because when the moments get rough, because it won't always be, you know, beautiful, that's the people that you 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 lean on who remind you, nah, keep going, keep fighting. Right. Yeah, I know white supremacy is tough and it, it makes you doubt yourself. Keep going. Keep fighting. Right. It's so important. And so I always tell people when people ask me, How do you survive in this work? I got a strong tribe and I created that tribe very intentionally.
0: Awesome. In surviving in this work in 2020 mm-hmm. specifically, has that been more of a challenge for you? Was for you, was it just like, okay, this is the same shit, but now everybody mm-hmm. else's eyes are on it. Like how did how did all of the events that have transpired over the past few months affected what you do? It
1: was definitely tough. You know, at the, once George Floyd was murdered, the requests came flowing in. I had I had put Brave trainings to the side when I transitioned out of higher ed into tech. And so for a good year, I had not done external trainings outside of the company I worked for. And that was intentional.
0: Mm-hmm. And the,
1: the requests also weren't coming in either. Then George Floyd happened and all of a sudden, I mean, 800% of an increase and I had to turn down clients. Right? So that was exhausting. Cause I mean, at back back trainings every single day, but I think also from a personal level, I was also experiencing as a black man and creating space. Right. So essentially having to put my shit on the back burner for a second so that I could help usher in some, some people who are just awakening to that fact that racism exists. Right. So this, this year was much harder than any other year doing this work particularly because when people disregarded the issues, it hurt more, you know? Cause it's like, what more do you need at this point, right? Like what more do you need to realize that this is not just one bad cop or one bad individual who is the you know, leader of a system, this is the system. And so I, I cried every day, every day. I was in meetings, just breaking down into tears. Because it's just, you know, this work is personal. This isn't about making money. This is not about getting rich. This is about educating and moving the needle forward. This is life or death, you know? And this year was much harder than any other year.
0: Do you think that people don't understand how personal it is? Because I am I feel similarly to you. When George Floyd happened, I'm like, well, that could have been me. When yeah. Ahmaud Arbery happened, I'm like, that could have been me. You know, Breonna Taylor, that could have been my sister, or my friend, or my mom, or whoever, Mm -hmm. when Pulse happened the year before last. I'm like, I could have been in that club. So it's really hard to do work like this when all of these injustices are happening to people that could just as easily be you or someone you know. And I I think there's a, a quantity of people who don't, just don't make the connection to how personal this work is. And I
1: think that leads us back to the whole selfish thing, right? Because it's not pers- it's not real until it's in your backyard, right? You know, it's not real until it's your grandchild or your friend, right? Or right, someone personal to you. And the question I always ask people is why does it have to be one degree of separation for you to recognize that even when it happens in the UK, that is a reason for us to stand up and go, no, that's not, that's not good. Right. And I, I think, so I think it's, the, it's that lack of it being personal and being someone that I actually know, right. I, I think, what is it? Chris Rock, he, he has this skit where he talks about, you know, when women listen to the, to the music talking about, you know, you know, the derogatory lyrics, like he ain't talking about me though. Right? And it's like, no, actually <laughs> he ain't saying your name, but he talk about you, right? Yep. Like we're all it in that way. But why does it have to be so personal for you to to realize that, no, I need to step up? And I also think that it's fear. People don't know what to do. There are people every day who I talk to, like, I just don't know what to do. So the easiest thing to do is to avoid it and to not even acknowledge that it's real, because I don't know how to fix it. And the the, the frustration of, not, of acknowledging it and not knowing what to do to fix it, for some people, for some reason, it's much worse than just ignoring it. Right. But the problem is is that when they ignore it, it doesn't happen it doesn't harm them, it harms us. Right. Right. But what they also don't know is that, you know, they coming for me tonight, they're coming for you tomorrow. Right? Like, <laughs> so don't get it twisted. They'll yeah, be back. You're, you're not right? gonna
0: go scot free forever. Exactly. It, do, it doesn't work like exactly. that. It doesn't Exactly. Work that. Yeah. So in terms of self care, mm-hmm. what are you doing to you know, obviously you've got your circle of friends and family yeah. and you've got your husband. What else are you doing yep. to keep yourself at a level during this time?
1: Taking lots of breaks. You know, I I, you know, I think as black people, we grow up believing that you just gotta constantly work and that taking vacations is not something that we're used to. And I have strongly implemented this idea of like, even if it's just, you know, for the weekend, I'm not touching email, social media, that's my break. Or it's like, hey, I'm scheduling this, you know, back when we could travel, I'm scheduling this trip three months from now, right? And I'm taking the time off and I'm gonna go somewhere and I'm leaving the laptop at home. It's everything from that to, we put up, we bought a hot tub in our backyard. hey in nice. the morning, before I go to my computer for work, I go get in the hot tub for 30 minutes, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's just me time. No phone, no dogs, <laughs> right? Just sitting in silence. And understanding that that's meditation, right? That, yeah, you know, I can use an app, I can sit and, you know, but like that's meditation too. And just reflecting on my thoughts or hearing the silence or whatever it may be, getting better in tune with my body, you know, of what hurts and, you know, things that. Like, so what's tense? Those are the things that I do at different points, right? Because everything requires something different at different times, but I utilize all of those things at some point to take care of myself.
0: It's good to have those, Things in place,
1: absolutely. So and, you know, good, good, good music. Music has always been a big part of my life since you know birth, right? Like we, we used to clean every Saturday to music, with everything from Mark Anthony and you know Seal Cruz to Marvin Gaye and you know like everything. And so there are a lot of times when I'm like frustrated, turn on some good music exactly. and just sing out loud, and
0: that also really heals as well. It's funny i wonder if is saturday like the universal black people cleaning day i think it was saturday cuz i didn't even like I, I had it in the back of my head but even now i do my cleaning on saturday uh
1: huh yeah
0: and it's yep. always been that way since i was a little kid saturday is the day to clean yep. um everything
1: so yeah, the, the woodwork at the bottom of the of the wall <laughs> like everything
0: <laughs> everything
1: everything uh,
0: so you're on the west coast now Yes. And what drove you from Camden to Ithaca to California?
1: Oh yeah, and and between that, I was in Vermont and Atlanta and stuff like that. You know, it was the job. So I transitioned from you know higher ed, where I was working at Cornell University, and got my first job in tech. And so, and I always wanted to live in California. You know, I have I have a lot of friends that live in California, and I had visited several times. I was like, this is beautiful. You know, because you had a mix of the of the nature and the city, right. you know, and like just the coasts, right? Like, it's just beautiful. And I always saw myself living in California and it didn't work out for a year. I had tried so many times, it never worked out. And then I got this job at the first tech company that I started working at and I moved to Santa Cruz, California. And it was just amazing. So, you know, I mean, I felt like I manifested that. I kept talking about it. I kept thinking about it. I kept, you know, really keeping it open. This is gonna happen for me. Just not when I wanted it to happen. And it, de- it happened in the best way because the day I moved, the day, I'm talking about the day I drove into Santa Cruz, I met my now husband. What? The day we got, we started, we met, we started dating, we got engaged, and we got married all in the same year.
0: Wow. <laughs> was it just like, went on a date and was like, this is it? You, you you just know. I mean, the feeling was just
1: so strong of like, no, this is what I've been waiting for, you know? And I, at that point, I ain't gonna lie. At that point, I was, I mean, before I met him, I was like, I ain't get married. This ain't happening. <laughs> you know, you kiss all the frogs and you just get tired of kissing amphibians. And so I was just like, I'm done. I'm, I'm over it. I'm focusing on me. I bought a doll, like all the different things they tell you to do, right? And I used to hate when people say, just, just live your life and focus on yourself and, and he and he, he will come. Will come. Because it was was only from people who were in relationships. Yep, I'm like, stop lying to me. And then sure enough, the minute I stopped focusing on it and sort of just focusing on living, he came. And that has been amazing. We've been married for a year now. So it's it's awesome. And how's married life? Married life is awesome. And, and, And it's hard, right? You know, it's hard when you've been dating for five years and then get engaged and then get married. We did all that in one year, so we're learning even more about each other, you know, our ins and outs and what annoys each of us. and, and, then, and, and then we merged our lives together. We, we bought a house shortly after we got married and you know things of that sort. So we're learning and we're, we're being patient with each other and we're being honest with each other and, and dealing with everything, but also enjoying the laughter and the goofy times and you know just it's, it's, it's awesome. It's
0: awesome. I love that. I think a lot of people don't realize how much work it takes to that relationships are in a state of continual development. Absolutely. As we grow as people. Absolutely. And and how much patience sometimes and grace Mm -hmm. we, we have to sometimes give people because we're even as we're all connected, we're also all on our own journeys.
1: Yep. That was, one of, that was one big thing that was really important for us is that oftentimes people will think, oh, when you get married, two become one. We're like, no, no, no. We still two who are now building a life together but as two separate people, right? Mm-hmm. He is still himself with his own desires and wants and needs and things that sort. And I am too. And the the journey is helping each other along with those separate desires, wants, and needs, right? What are his aspirations and how do we support what he wants to do and vice versa and, and things that sort
0: I gotta ask going back a little bit, what was Vermont like for you? Because I've visited Vermont on two occasions. My best friend's wife and her family are from Vermont. I love them. But also and I'm it's not uncommon for me to be in very white spaces, but Vermont is white. Yes, yes, with the H first. It is quite,
1: yes. <laughs> um, you know, cause Vermont back then when I, when I was, I don't know if it is now, but Vermont was the second whitest state in the country next to Maine. It might still right. be. A, right. And so, yeah, so I was in Burlington, Vermont, and that's when I was getting my master's in higher ed from UVM. It was a painful experience for many reasons. So not just because of the state, but because of you know, the program I was in and the people who I was with in that program and some things I experienced there. But I remember my, what, maybe third week in Burlington, this white woman who was dating a black residential hall director at UVM, she was in downtown Burlington and these three skinhead white men surrounded her and called her a nigger lover.
0: Oh shit. And this
1: is in 2011, right? Oh shit. This is nine years ago. That this happened and I was like, huh, oh, okay. So this is this is what we're doing. Right. So and I and I say that to say that, you know, people think, oh, Burlington's so liberal and blah, blah, blah. It's like, nah, even liberal spaces got some characters and mm-hmm. has and have some work to to really deal with. So as a black man, it was hard. As a gay person, you know, it's Burlington, right? But as a gay black man, it was hard. You know, but it's a part of my history and my maturing that i don't regret but it, it was definitely i would never go back there for
0: sure i totally yeah. get that yeah. so <laughs> what what what's the next step for cornell what, what's the the next process in the evolution you know for me it's it's just continual
1: continual growth and i say that because i i don't i don't know what's next, right? I, I, I have my desires. I want to save more money. I want to buy a bigger house. I, you know, wanna, I, I'm, I'm working on a doctoral degree, but I'm not a PAC, an EDD. It's a three-year program at the University of, of uh, Southern California in organizational development. So I want to graduate from that and figure out what's next from there. I know that at some point I want to be the top leader in DEI at a company or learning and development, stuff like that. But at the very core, and it sounds super corny and 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 you know, like Saturday special, you know, morning (laughs) cartoons, but like I just wanna change the world. You know what I mean? Like I just I just I just wanna continue doing what I'm doing and helping people understand all of this right? Because the reality of it is there are still people who just do not get it. And you can call that chosen ignorance or just un—you know uh, unconscious ignorance, but the reality of it is, is that it still exists. And so I want to level up my platform and not from a matter of getting rich, but from a matter of getting in front of people who need to hear what I have to say in hopes that the next person will continue to water that seed that I planted and that eventually more people will go, whoa, okay. I'm on board to helping erase racism and sexism and all the isms around the world. That's that's what's next for me.
0: All right. And this ties in, what is the most gratifying thing about the work that you do?
1: Mm, it's the aha moments that you see people have right in front of your face. They may not say it, but you see it and they go, oh, and I love it, one of my favorite examples of it it's like, this is probably nine years ago. I was doing a, a, a workshop in soon Potsdam, which is up there near Canada. And this is, this is a white town that I'm in. And the client asked me to come and do a training for the dining services staff. So not only is it white, but it's very working class, mm-hmm. right? So these are people who are like, don't talk to me about racism because I'm poor. And I'm trying to, you know, right? Like, you know what I mean? And so I had three hours with this group. This is 120 people, by the way. So we're doing this training and for the first hour and a half, you know, I'm talking about class and sexism, religion. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the men with sexism, like, yeah, I, that makes sense. Right. The women are loving it. They're eating it up. They're loving it. We showed this video that I think I showed you all when I did your workshop with Georgia Gray talking mm-hmm. about the, her experience in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And this table for white women, cause George, Dr. Georgia Gray, excuse me, uses the term white, white privilege. And the table full of white women are just like, oh, you see them getting really upset and pissed off and annoyed. And I'm like, oh, all right, here we go. And so the video's over and I say, you know, you, you appear to be upset. May I ask, you know, why? And they're like, well, what does she mean by white privilege? I don't have white privilege. And I'm like, okay, cool. So for the first hour and a half, we talked about, you know, sexism and male privilege. And you understood that, right? And she goes, yeah, absolutely. And I said, well, why? Well, well, I'm a victim of, and she goes, oh shit. I'm like, go ahead. She's like, of course I understand male privilege because I'm a victim of male privilege. And of course I don't understand white privilege because I'm white. And I was like, and that's it. And the whole table went, oh my God. And you just see the bulb going, whoa, <laughs> that's it for me. Right? Like that moment can erase 500 moments of ignorance for me right and that was a tape and mind you the table of five people but the uh, 115 people heard it right and heard the aha moment and the perspective and the context that's why I continue doing what I do that's that's the gratifying moments right there
0: i would like to thank cornell for not only taking the time out of his schedule to be interviewed but for doing what he does period what cornell does is amazing and it takes a Man's amount of patience and persistence and calmness to be able to come in day in and day out and do that particular job. To be a queer black man and show up in the world every day as your truest self is a lot. To do it as your profession and then get paid for the pleasure of doing so is amazing. That is a hashtag life goal for me. Uh, The world needs more people like Cornell. And if you would like to hire him, please go to bravetrainings.com. Once again, that is bravetrainings.com. You can also follow Cornell on Instagram at itsmecornell. And of course, if you are looking for a meditation app, you should download Headspace. I was actually using that long before I met Cornell. It was the first meditation app that I ever used. The person that does the narration has like a a kind British voice. He sounds like my friend Benji Rogers, who I would love to have on the show someday. Uh, But it's an awesome app. Uh, If you want to figure out how to take a few minutes for yourself to get your mind right, uh, make sure you download Headspace. So this podcast is all about helping men become better men, sharing stories, talking about being open and practicing, being truthful and honest and having feelings and all that good stuff, but done in a way that's maybe not so, I want to say, obvious about it or, or I don't want it to feel like an after-school special or anything like that. It's just people conversing, trying to make the world a better place, trying to make themselves better people. So if you support that mission, if you want men to be better better men, if you want people to be better people, make sure you rate, you subscribe, and you follow this podcast. Uh, We really appreciate your patronage. Uh, We appreciate you listening and spreading the word. I am on social media. Instagram is DetoxPodGuy. Twitter is TizMikeJoseph. You can email me, even because people still do that by the way at detoxpod at gmail.com look forward to hearing from you if you have a guest that you'd like to suggest if you want to be on the show yourself just hit me up i am here and i am waiting for you standing by the hotline waiting for the phone to ring so you can tell me a how much you love detoxicity and b how much you want to be on the show or you know somebody who wants to be on the show or you have constructive criticism or whatever i just love communicating with people and uh i'm not being sarcastic about that last part (laughs) Also not sarcastic about this, as I record this, we are still in the middle of the COVID-19 hellscape, so I really, really want to urge you to, you know, just protect yourself, protect the others around you, wear a mask, uh, social distance, do all that good stuff. Just in the name of empathy and being kind to one another, it's important that we all stay safe and healthy, so please do so. Thank you for listening.